Holy Sunday and lovely to have a full house this morning. Um, so we have a discussion point, which I'm sure by now you're all familiar with. I'm going to zoom in because I'm blind. There we go. So um, who here is familiar with figs? You know what they are, yeah. So when I was younger, we had summer holidays uh, from school or holidays during... And, and what do summer holidays mean? Nectarines. Yeah, it also means digging holes, mostly. Um, so when we had a break from school, it would be, there would be holes to be dug. So when I was growing up, we had like a, a fish pond that we dug once, but we hit a water main, so we had to move the fish pond. So one summer it was dig a fish pond, the next summer it was fill that fish pond in and dig the fish pond in a different place. Um, another summer it was fill that fish pond in because the house was being rented out and then my parents moved back and so it was dig that fish pond out again and then it was like flatten out this part or we're planting fruit trees so we're going to dig a hole and I remember one year we planted a fig tree and my job was to dig the hole for the fig tree and it was in the backyard and, and uh, you think you know tiny little fig but this was actually a, a sizable tree at that point and um, <laughs> It was kind of amusing because my father comes out and goes, right, now to plant this tree, we're going to need a hole that's roughly one meter by one meter by one meter. It's like one meter cubed. So it's quite a hole and, and it's <laughs> rectangular as well. And we, I grew up in Toowoomba and they have like really hard clay there as well. So, uh, so you know, I had this, this pick and a mattock and a shovel and we dug a one meter by one meter by one meter hole that ended up being slightly larger because initially I dug it in the wrong place. And so we sort of had to trench over to where it had to be <laughs> and then fill in behind. But that's a lot of soil. <laughs> And I remember the fig tree going in and being quite disappointed because year after year after year after year, the fig tree would sit there in this big hole that I dug, filled in, watered, soiled, tended to, looked after. Uh, you know, I think it's from the Bible. It says, what if I dig it and dung it? It got digged and it got dunged. And um, really there was no fruit for a very long time, a very, very long time. In fact, the tree didn't get very much bigger. And I remember the first time I ever had a fig off that tree, and, and it took a couple of years, because we've only got two or three fruit and, uh, you know, per year, and, um, and there's five of you in the family. It takes a few years before it's your turn for the fig. But eventually I had a fresh fig, and I understood what all the years of toil and labor and digging holes was on about. And it turns out that, um, you know, Jesus also liked figs. And so in my striving to become like Jesus, you know, figs and a big part of my growing up. No, that's, that's just a joke. All right. But, so this morning, this morning's discussion point is called drive-by fruiting. And uh, <laughs> it's about life according to the Spirit. And uh, we're going to talk a little about figs. We're going to talk about a few other things as well to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so, uh, Christ's encounter with figs in Matthew. Jesus and the fig tree. And, and there were many encounters, many parables regarding figs. Uh, figs feature quite heavily in the Bible, but I'm going to focus on one particular one. I'm going to read out loud because I love the Word of God read out loud. It has like a resonance and a power about it. And so early in the morning, as Jesus went on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the tree, uh, into the tree. Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. And, um, you know, I, I love that one. You often see the end of that story about whatever you ask for in prayer, you know. 
uh, it will be done, repeated often in the church. And, and I think the story as a whole has some other layers behind it. We're going to pull that apart a little bit. And uh, so I've always, I was actually always quite puzzled by this particular um, story and parable because, you know, like, I don't, it seems a bit harsh, to be honest. Going up to a fig tree, in, in another account it talks about the fig tree was actually slightly out of season, and finding nothing but leaves, and then saying, I'm hungry, there's no fruit, you're never going to bear fruit again, and then immediately it dies. And like, oh. And sometimes it's used as a bit of a cautionary tale, kind of like, you know, our lives are meant to be fruitful like a fig tree, and if there's no lives, you know, God's going to come along with a stick and go like that. And, and I think that's totally distorting the message that's on there. That's not the nature of God. Um, but that's often how it's portrayed and how it's used, and we feel like, oh, I have to make sure my life is fruitful, and you know, otherwise God's going to be watching me. And, and there's no freedom in that. There's no, there's no life and liberty in those situations. So that's, that's, that's not the interpretation we're going for in this particular thing. And uh, figs are often used to refer to the state of, of Israel and, and things along those lines, and, and that's well and good, and there is a, a basis for that, but I think that's possibly, for this morning, that's reading a little bit too much into things. Let's try and just look at this a little bit more on the surface. And I'd like to present an interpretation, a way of looking at this story that um, is really more my thoughts on the matter than, you know, um, the official doctrinal position of any particular denomination. But if you'll indulge me a little bit this morning, I'd like to talk about it and try and understand a little bit more about this story in the way uh, way that I've been thinking about it. So, so Jesus encounters a fig tree and is hungry. And what we know about Christ was that he was fully man, which means he was hungry. <laughs> and he was fully God. You know, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and he was God. So the Word was in there right in the beginning. right? But he's on earth and he's hungry. There's this fully God part of Jesus. And it's being put together with this fully human part where there's hunger. And so this hunger is this reminding that he's had to come to earth to save a fallen humanity. The disciples don't know that, but he knows that. And so he goes up to the tree and he says, I'm hungry. I'm going to go and see a fig tree. He goes up to the fig tree in summer and he sees nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. And Jesus, who had been taught up, brought up from a young boy understanding the scriptures, would have remembered back in Genesis, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, when the fall happened, they realized they were naked. Sin and shame entered the world and crowded their space. And the first thing they did was like, we've got to clothe ourselves. And they found fig leaves and they sewed them together to make garments. And when God found them, the first animal was killed so that they could have clothes. In that manner, death entered the world at that point as well. And so Christ comes to the fig tree and he sees nothing but fig leaves. The covering of shame, the original indicator of the fall. He remembers back to that time when he was with God. He remembers the scriptures from being brought up as a boy of that covering. The fig leaves are there. And he's looking for hunger, something to satisfy the fact that he has had to come to earth clothed in human form to save humanity. A a reminder that he is fully man for for this time. And he sees nothing but leaves, the reminder of the fall. And so he says to that tree, may you never bear fruit again. 
And the subtext behind that is sin and shame, the representation of those fig leaves, may you never bear fruit again. So there's a curse on the tree, but it's actually also saying, you don't know what's about to happen, but I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to rise again. And then that that sin and shame, that covering, that representation of when, when the fall happened, when sin entered the world, that is dying. That is being destroyed, never to bear fruit again. And so in our lives, we don't bear the fruit of sin and shame. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. And this was this, this thing that I was thinking about last night and, and, and maybe sort of trying to read into it a little bit more. You know, and I was amazed at this sort of this idea that we don't have to be bound by leaves, but we can actually be bound by fruit, by the fruit of the Spirit. We're not actually called to cover ourselves with, with a tree that has no fruit, with just the leaves. We're actually called to eat of the fruit of the Spirit and live that out in our lives. And that was just an amazing thing for me and, and, and sort of a way of perhaps understanding this parable. It's not just about knocking off a fig tree, but it's actually about knocking off sin and death and all of the things that have entered the world since the fall. I love this, this you know, the, the disciples are saying, how did you do that? You know, that's quite a cool trick to be able to just say to a tree, die and it dies. And, and kind of perhaps not getting what the significance of this is. And Jesus replies, truly I tell you, if you have faith, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. And I've always wondered, what is this mountain? You know, probably there was a mountain, he was pointing at it saying, go to this mountain. But I wonder, I wonder if he was also saying, you can also say to this mountain of sin, this mountain of shame, this mountain of fear, this mountain of anxiety, this mountain of, of anything in our lives that represents that which entered the world, go throw yourself into the sea, and it no longer has a hold of our lives. And, and I love that because all of a sudden this goes from being a story about just a dead tree to a story about power, a story about Christ's actions on earth. And that was an amazing thing to see and to hear. So that got a little bit deep, but I think very interesting. See, ultimately a lack of fruit, a lack of the fruit represents a lack of purpose. And without purpose, you can't have hope. Without hope, ultimately you're going to fall into hopelessness and that's going to lead to a sense of destruction. Because without hope, right, there's no reason to keep on. See, so, so in that manner, we press on. You know, I love, there's a reference, we don't have time to go there now, but in Luke uh, chapter 21, in 29, there's the parable of the budding fruit, of the budding fig tree, right? So it's, it's looking at another tree and it's saying, actually, you can see the buds. The fruit is about to come in the fig tree. And the fruit in the fig tree in, that Luke, in, in Luke is saying, when you see the buds, you know that the kingdom of God is near. You know, and I, I think, you know, you combine that with this and it's just all of a sudden this amazing picture comes where you're saying, right, when you start to see fruit in the sense of a fig tree, but maybe in our lives, when you start to see the buds of fruit, the things where you start to, to, to see the things of God coming out in our lives, the kingdom of God is near. And we make a big thing about this, about how the kingdom of God is some sort of far off. In fact, there's a lot, you know, centuries of arguments about whether the kingdom of God is a far off thing that's going to come, and whether the kingdom of God is something right here that we can live in. Um, my understanding based on the study that I've done is that the evidence indicates that the kingdom of God is both a, 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 a right now thing and a to be fulfilled thing. It, it exists in both planes and that's fine because, you know, that's God. He can do that. Um, in other words, there are aspects of the kingdom of God that have come to earth, but there are also aspects that are yet to be fulfilled. 
And so we live in that. And it's love that when you see the fruit in your lives, when you see the fruit of the fig in our lives, okay, there, there is this reference to the kingdom of God being near. So what is this fruit that we're speaking of? <laughs> Any ideas? The fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, and I'm going to make Andy repeat all of them. Yeah. Nah, I had that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You had them yesterday. No, no, no. That's all right. I have them up here, so we can. Uh, 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 exactly, exactly. Here's one I prepared earlier. Right. Um, I think so. The fruit in Galatians five. So we're sort of saying, you know, what do we mean fruit? And for some of you, you know, if you haven't been around church a lot, this idea of what the fruit of the spirit it makes no sense. I don't understand what are we talking about. And 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 it's very easy for us to fall into a. Uh, like, a, like our own little language where we understand these terms but we're not explaining them very well. And Galatians, Paul talks about this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of the things when we live according to the Spirit. Right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love this next sentence, and I'll explain why in a moment. Against such things there is no law. <laughs> there is no prohibition. In all of these things, there is freedom. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. and Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. I... That, that whole chapter is worth reading, if you have time. Um, so, from about um, chapter, verse 13 on, Galatians 5, verse 13, it talks about the idea of life by the Spirit, and how we who are in Jesus, we who have been saved, we are in Christ Jesus, are called to live according to the Spirit, and not according to the flesh. And, and, and I think this is really interesting. It's sort of like the way I like to think of this is, 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 is kind of we're called to live according to the Spirit. That is that which is inside us, which is God-breathed and God-birthed, not according to the meat that occupies the exterior. <laughs> you know, and, and I think this is, we're sort of saying, and that helps sort of understand this idea of the flesh. You know, uh, we talk about God incarnate. You know, incarnate, that, that, that root, incarnate from carnivore, all these things like that. It literally is God in the meat, God in the flesh, these things like that. And so, so often we're constrained by just the meat of our existence rather than living by the Spirit. And this is what this whole verse is dealing with. And sort of saying, well, we know what the fruits of the Spirit are. Against such things there is no law. And when we live according to the Spirit, these things become outworkings of our lives, the fruit, the productive, the productive things of our lives, rather than the fruit of the law. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then in verse 19, and for completeness, there's a list of things that are the act of the flesh. And I would encourage you to read that in your own time. Uh, because verse 19 is the list of the things that are a part of the flesh, and verse 22 is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, with regards to verse 19, and I, I, I say something on this, because if you only ever preach on just the fruits of the Spirit and not on verse 19, right, you get crucified if anybody listens to you <laughs> preaching, because everybody's all about wrath. I would say this, list sins. 
And I think so often in church, we set out and we inadvertently make a hierarchy of sin. We sort of say, this one's worse than this one, this one's worse than this one. You know, there's no such hierarchy of sin in God. We all have stuff that we struggle with that will be on that list. And the reality is that we just have to work through that. Attempting to live according to the Spirit, not according to the works of the flesh. Right? Okay, we say, well, we hold the murderer higher than the adulterer, the adulterer higher than the liar. Well, the reality is that in God's eyes, sin is sin. The person who tells a lie is the same as the person who commits murder. And Christ came to fulfill that law so that we might live in freedom in the Spirit, not in bondage to the flesh. That is the most important part of that. When we set our eyes on Jesus, when we try and live according to His Word and His Spirit, right, these things, fruits of the Spirit, are love, joy, peace, forbearance, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control become a natural outworking of who we are. And I think that's exciting and empowering rather than condemning and making you feel bad about things. So these fruits, let's go into them. I don't have time to do a detailed study on each of them, and, and I'm pretty sure if I did, I could bore you all silly. Um, like I'm good at that. Don't get me wrong. When it calls, I can put anybody to sleep. But we're just going to do a quick... Um, we're just going to do a quick run-through, right, so we get, get some ideas about how maybe these things are a little different to what you think they might be. Uh, but... Um, still we'll just spend a little bit of time on them so love, uh, agape you'll have heard that before uh, there's a book, I think uh, C.S. Lewis spoke of the four loves and uh, talks about different love that's used in the Bible and I like this one because it's uh, um, love on purpose, this is my favourite definition of it love on purpose, not by chance or by circumstance um, so has anybody ever been to a wedding? yeah, yeah <laughs> and so probably at that wedding they would have read out 1 Corinthians verse 13, right? The love verse, um, and awkwardly I can't remember how it starts. But just, uh, what is it? Uh, love, love, is, love is patient, love is kind. Yeah, right. And it says at the end, and the greatest of these is love. And, and I always find it interesting sitting there listening to it because um, knowing a little bit about, I suppose, the language aspect of it all is that that particular love is this word agape, which often is used to speak of the love that God has for humanity. Um, and it's a very specific type of love. Because it's, it's, it's particularly selfless. Um, it is love on purpose. And it's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon chance. The fact that you happen to be born into a particular family. So you're obliged to love people. The fact that you happen to be married to someone. So you're loving them because. Um, maybe for a little bit. Because it's more of a hormonal response. Than a. Than a. Than, a, uh, that, than you know a decision. Right. It's a love that's actually an act of the will. It's a sacrificial love. A love that costs something. And in the King James Version, it's, it's, it's because the King James was translated from Latin, and Latin uses the word caritas, and so the word they use is charity. So if you're ever invited to do a Bible reading at a wedding, and you want to make life interesting, <laughs> read it from the King James Version, because 1 Corinthians 13, you know, if I have all of these things but have not charity, I am but a sounding gong. You know, charity is patient, charity is kind. And it goes on like that, and the greatest of these is charity. Now, if you do that, there's a fairly sizable chance the bride will come up to you afterwards and punch you right in the face. <laughs> but it's meant to say that there's an aspect to this love. This is when I hear it, because when I hear that verse, I'm often thinking in my mind, this is slightly different love to maybe the love that's being celebrated today. Like, it, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's not. There are aspects of that love that come out in a marital relationship, especially over time, when so many other things kind of fall away and, and it's... it's you find yourself love being an act of the will as much as an act of, of you know, emotion and things along those lines. 
So uh, I spent a little bit more time on that than I intended to, but that's sort of the general idea. This idea, it's actually, this love is a very specific type of love and it's a very encompassing, selfless kind of love called agape. Joy, kara. Love is, uh, sorry, joy is love's consciousness by a guy called George C. Morgan. And I, I like that one. It's sort of consciousness of love leads to joy and the outworking of that. Peace, Irini. The rule of order in the place of chaos. We live in this world that can sometimes be so chaotic. You know, I love this idea that people have this idea that science is so precise and you, you get down to a small level and everything just sort of lines up. And I scratch my head thinking sometimes, you know, to be honest, it's anything but precise. You know how difficult it is to get something accurately? Even just to measure something accurately is difficult. There's so much chaos and, and disorder and our lives sometimes feel like this whirlwind of chaos. Yet in that God's peace, Irini comes and rules and places order where it just seems like, you know, the world is just spinning around like a whirlwind. Forbearance, macrothumia, I hope I said that right. Forbearance. You know, in surveys they find that three out of four bearances have no idea what forbearance means. It's on one of the slides. Patience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, neither do I. Like, I, I must admit, I talk about, like, you know, if, if queuing was an Olympic sport, I could be in the Olympics. You know, I have the patience required to queue and queue effectively. We talk about the hierarchy of sins, you know. If, 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 if it was the Church of Dave and not the Church of God, people would be like, well, you know, I'm a murderer. I'd be like, well, you know, God can forgive you, you know. Uh, I'm a liar. Well, God can forgive you. And I'm like, I'm a queue barger. I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> but it's not like that. God even forgives cue barges. But, you know, when we talk about forbearance or patience or something along those lines, and this was something I read on it that really, really spoke to me, uh, because it was very, very hard. <laughs> In terms of fruits of the Spirit, it's very hard. Choosing not to seek vengeance, even when it's justified. You know... We've all had people wrong us. We've all had people that have done things that have left us wanting vengeance. Sometimes we've had opportunities to seek vengeance. Yet the fruit of forbearance or the fruit of patience says, I know what they did was terrible, but that's God's problem, it's not mine. And I'm not going to seek vengeance for it. I'll tell you what, that's a hard one. But it's the fruit of the Spirit that allows us to operate in that rather than being tied up with this desire for vengeance all the time, which can ruin, ruin people. And I speak from a certain amount of experience. You end up tied up. You know, sometimes this sort of stuff, seeking vengeance, they talk about the idea that um, it's like taking poison yourself and hoping the other person will die. <laughs> you just poisoned your world and they're just going on in life. We've got to learn to let go. And fortunately, God gives us the help that we need to let go. So we got through the first four. There should be another... Ah! There's another five? Yeah, I should know that. <laughs> Kindness. Christotes. In Romans 11.22, we don't have time to go there, but it talks about this idea that kindness, this is kind of a kindness that God possesses in incomprehensible measure towards us. And that's, that's, that's kind of like, a, let's try and expand on that a little bit, you know. I never really thought of it in this context that God turned around and said, you know, uh, God would have been justified in just letting humanity fade away. Well, they fell away. They chose 
to become like me and in the process fell away from me. So therefore, there is no obligation on my part. But yet God had incomparable kindness and goodness towards us such that he sent Jesus so that we might have relationship with him. And so we talk about this kindness. It's kind of a reflection of that kindness of God that simply says, uh, instead of harshness, there was mercy. Instead of, of judgment, there was peace. Goodness. Uh, Agastune. Goodness tends to be directed towards morality in this context. So when we talk about goodness, usually when this word is used, it's talking about, um, I guess, what we would call morally good or the outworkings, the visible outworkings of people. Well, not so much doing the right thing because anybody can be seen to be doing the right thing, but people who actually kind of live the right thing. And, and again, none of this is particularly easy, um, but I'm, I'd rather be someone who strives to do the right thing than someone who strives to appear like they're doing the right thing. Uh, and that means that sometimes it's going to be a little bit ugly on the outside when I don't manage to do the right thing, but at least I'm trying in the right direction. And uh, I think that that's sort of thing. Faithfulness, I'm going to say this wrong. Pistis or pistis. And I love this one, faithfulness. There's a root meaning of this, which is faith. And it means divine persuasion. And we've been talking about this in, in different contexts. You know, in Alpha course, we're talking about how, how hard it is to argue people into, the, into, into Christianity <laughs> and how pointless it is sometimes to argue people into Christianity. And the reality is that when we talk about this idea of faith, there's a divine aspect to it. So we don't have to do so much of the arguing, like it's good to be prepared and it's good to be faith-filled. But at the same time, there is a divine aspect to the persuasion. Faithfulness, divine persuasion, from the, from the root meaning divine persuasion. And that just means a certain consistency that comes from the fact that we have been persuaded that our course is correct by God. So we can be faithful in church or faithful to God because we have been persuaded by Him. We can be faithful to our workplace, or loyal or however you want it, all that, because we have been persuaded by God that work is ordained by Him and for the benefit of us and for others in our world. We're faithful in our relationships because we've been persuaded by God that that is a desirable thing, that that, that is a reflection of uh, His divine image. You know, male and female, He created them. In the image of God, He created them. Gentleness. Uh, oh, I can't remember how to say that one. Praetes or something along those lines. <laughs> Galatians 6.1. Uh, it talks about restoring people, um, and it uses this concept of gentle restoration. You know, it means that like people are going to mess up. It's kind of given in some respects, and when that happens, right, there's going to be a time of restoration. But part of that is gentleness. Part of that is avoiding harshness. Is not making people feel like they can't possibly measure up to an impossible standard. It's actually being gentle and having time directed to those people. I like that. That, that way, Galatians 6, 1, gentle restoration. And self-control, which is probably one of the harder ones. Self-control of one's own, own phone, not dropping it on the floor, is, is particularly difficult, if you're me. And uh, I'm going to check how one this one Ekkratia, self-control. It's sometimes referred to as self-mastery. And uh, I, I love this. Anybody ever heard uh, Brooke Fraser? Um, or heard of, heard of Brooke Fraser. It's like a, like a Kiwi singer. So she had this album um, 
a while back, and I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it had, I, think, I think it was named after the title track, it was like Albertine or something along those lines. And there's a really cool song on that called Orphans and Kingdoms, or Orphans Kingdoms. Hopefully she never hears the fact that I just messed up the name of the song. But it has a beautiful line in it that I love. It says, who is he who can conquer himself? And it's this great question mark. And I find myself asking myself about that as is sort of this idea that like, you know, my problems are sometimes external, but often my problems are just because the hardest person I find to keep in line is my own person. <laughs> who is he who can conquer himself? And, and I find that, you know, it's like it's hard to fight against your own selfish ambitions. It's hard to fight against your own desires. It's basically this constant, you know, nagging of the flesh that comes in. Yet one of the fruits of spirit is the, who is he that by himself can conquer himself? No one. But who is he who with Christ's help can conquer himself or their selves? Making this gender neutral? Everyone. And, and I think that's, that's really pretty. So what does this mean for us, how do we apply this in our world? And that's a, that's a very good question. Um, anybody have an idea? No? Oh, okay. Um, well, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> and we can decide if that's, not, if that's not too bad. I think this really has two parts to it. We can look out and we can look in. And I think there's a, I'm going to talk a little bit about looking out. Um, in this world, you're going to encounter a lot of stuff, a lot of church stuff, a lot of non-church stuff, a lot of people talking about church stuff. And um, basically, if anybody's doing anything, someone will be there critiquing it in one form or another. And, and that, on one level, is good because it kind of sharpens things up a little bit and it tends to, you know, tend to avoid having problems in the long term. But in everything, when you encounter a new ministry in the church, when you encounter someone talking about a new ministry in the church, when you encounter someone stepping out in business, when you encounter people leading things or doing things, the best way to see how close it is to the kingdom of God or how near it is to the kingdom of God is to look at the fruit. You know, By your fruit shall you know them. By their fruit shall you know them. And, and I think this is, this is the really good litmus test for when we read things or we encounter things on Facebook or, you know, what people say about particular ministries or something like that, it's like, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of what they're doing? And what is the fruit of the people that are saying things about what they're doing? And that way we get to feel exactly what is a reflection of God's position on it, right? So often you have people with big ministries and things along those lines and you've got a lot of people sort of throwing darts at it or saying things about this, that, and the other. And, you know, when the fruit of that criticism matches up with this, you know, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love, patience, all of these things, then it's a reflection of the kingdom of God. You know, when the ministry espouses these things and you see that people are gently restored, people are treated in a kind manner, that people are inspired to leave lives of self-mastery, that uh, if we go back to the original, people love and love not just with a, a sense of self or a sense of getting something, but actually love with a sense of selflessness, then man, that is a reflection of the kingdom of God. The fig tree is in bud. The kingdom is near. But when we don't see these things, it's sometimes a good way to know whether God's in one or in the other 
or there are aspects of God that are in one and perhaps not in the other. And so that's, that's a good way of just, when you encounter things in your world, you know, how does this line up? What kind of fruit is this producing? Is it the fruit of the Spirit or is it the fruit of the flesh where it talks about division, envy, strife, hatred? And, and I, I, it's so useful. You know, I've been thinking about this this week and trying to apply it to different things in my life as a test. You know, what is producing fruit and what isn't? So that is a way of looking at the world, looking out. What's another way of dealing with the fruit? Instead of looking outwards, we try and look inwards, right? So we use it to interpret the things that we see and encounter in our world, but we also use it to interpret things in our own lives and, and how we want to be. See, see, I know in myself that in a natural sense, I can easily live up to the desires of the flesh, right? <laughs> I can become divisive, envious, hateful, you know, idolatrous, all of those sorts of things. I can raise money up over this, so I can raise you know, uh, possessions or, or, or position up over God. That's easy, right? But I want to live according to the fruit of the Spirit, right? I want to be able to live in the kind of love that actually cares about people instead of um, just caring about what I can get from people. And I want to be able to master myself so that I can be a reflection, uh, you know, a good reflection to people of what Christ was and is and what he did for us. And so I know that I want the fruit of God in my life. I want to live according to the Spirit and I desire those things. And so the outworkings of my life that I see that have that fruit, that's the stuff I want to focus on and work with. And the things that the aspects of my life that don't have that fruit, that start to create division, hatred, envy, immorality, those are the things that I don't want to focus on and build and be built and build up, right? Whatever you feed is going to be built up. If you feed a fig tree that just produces leaves, it's going to produce nice leaves, but all that's going to do is try and cover sin and shame. If you, build a, if, you, if, you, if you dig it and you dung it, and it's a fig tree that produces fruit, and that's also from the Bible, um, fig tree that produces fruit, right, that fruit, and that fruit's the fruit of the Spirit, right, then that is a worthwhile investment, and that reflection, all of a sudden your life starts to overflow and brim with fruit rather than just with leaves. So there's quite, quite a lot there tonight. There, tonight. Oh, boy. <laughs> Now, we haven't been talking that long, right? <laughs> Actually, perfectly on time. <laughs>